Acts chapter 4, verse 13. We're going through a series of messages in the Word um, that we've titled The Beauty of Badger Skins. And we just came off a few weeks ago of our uh, a year, year or so long study on First and Second Peter. And I don't, I don't, I don't know where we're going to go next yet in, in studying through God's Word, what book we're going to go through, but we're getting ready to. But I um, want to focus in on something that, that uh, we've been looking at in the last couple of um, couple of Sundays. And as we open up God's precious Word, Acts chapter 4, verse 13, let's have prayer, please. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and we lift you high and worship you. And we're thankful, Lord, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld your glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We're thankful, Lord, that uh, we have your Word. Here it is. It's not some uh, dead or irrelevant letter, but it's alive. Your Word is alive. And it's made alive and quickened in our spirit by the power of the Holy Spirit who wrote it. And we're thankful, Lord, that it testifies of the beauty and the work and the witness and the salvation and the glory of your dear Son. And your glory has displayed through Him and His perfect obedience it went all the way to the cross of Calvary. And then three days later you raised Him from the dead and He's at your right hand and He ever lives to make intercession for us. And in the meantime, we're sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise until the day of redemption. And the Lord, we've been, we've been taken care of big time. And now what love has been lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God. And such we are, as you gave us the gift of repentance and faith in your dear Son. You've changed us. And now we're asking, Lord, that you would take the soil of our heart and you would till it up um, and, and, um, and make it um, fertile. Put the moisture on it that's necessary to soften it so that uh, your Word finds uh, easy access to the very bottom of it. And begins to take root, downward, root downward, which is what we're praying for, so that we will bear fruit upward. And uh, we know that's the promise and power of you as you minister through and change us and wash us and inform us and convict us and comfort us through the power of your word. So, Father, I pray you'll, you'll speak to our hearts through your word. And I know you will because you always do. And I just pray that while you do it, that you give us ears to hear. And we love you, Lord, and worship you and praise you. Thanking you again that you first loved us. In the sweet name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We've been going through looking at Acts uh, chapter 4, verse um, 13, just to kind of launch us in the places we will go this morning. Um, and as you know, we've been going and looking at, just from a, uh, a view of the, of, of the tabernacle, and the, and the instruction, the tabernacle that's given in the Bible, and how the tabernacle and all the elements of it speak of God's redemptive work through His Son to uh, save us and to uh, keep us in, in the future hope of glory that we will share with Jesus one day. And that the tabernacle is a beautiful picture of all of that. We've been looking at elements of the tabernacle that uh, Spencer is going to put up on the screen here in a moment. And uh, in particular, we were looking at the testimony of Nehemiah. And how in the book of Nehemiah, you'll recall that that was the third of three waves of return from the Babylonian um, captivity to go back to Jerusalem and start rebuilding. And we observed that on the first wave, they went and rebuilt the temple. And it wasn't until the third wave in Nehemiah when they, they rebuilt the, um, the, the uh, wall around it. And what we've been lifting from that is that if we probably would do things the way that we traditionally do them and the way that we think, we would have reversed that order. We would have probably thought it best to uh, rebuild the wall first to protect us so that we could do the intimate construction that was necessary for the temple inside. But yet God reverses it and does it differently. And, uh, of course, uh, He's God and we're not. Hallelujah. And I believe that one of the things He communicates to us through that is, is that the building of the wall, um, if it's preceded or is done independent of the fellowship and worship that takes place in the temple, then the wall building will be done in our own strength. 
And so that's what we've got to guard against the Christian life. Many of us in here, you're doing some hard things. You're doing some things that God's called you to do. To, um, to um, walk in His ways and hopefully not have a bent or trajectory toward the way the world views things, but to do it very differently. And that's great. And that's, that's a, that's, those are spiritual pursuits. But when they don't become great, it's when we try to do them in our own strength. Remember that if, if we uh, are trying to build the wall for fellowship and we don't fellowship, we're in trouble. And we looked at, uh, we're looking at this through the contrast that's drawn between the courtyard believer who's wandering around in the courtyard of the tabernacle, saved, saved, redeemed, but has never yet entered into the tent of meeting, which we're used saying is communion. So we can be a courtyard believer or we can be a believer in communion. And we looked at the characteristics, the traits of what it means to be a believer in communion uh, a couple of weeks ago. And then, last week, we observed that those are characteristics of the communion that we went over, but they're not the criteria for entering into it. What is the criteria for entering into communion? Because I have to say, and uh, it is really true, that if we begin the carpentry work of wall building without the communion necessary to empower it, it leads to casualties. So construction without communion leads to casualties. In our own lives, and also potentially in the lives we were watching, and the people we were having influence over. So we looked at it last week and said, you know what, the characteristics of communion look something like this, and I encourage you to go back uh, three weeks if you haven't weren't here for that message to go back and look at the, the characteristics and see where we are. But now we're looking at not the characteristics but the criteria. And we looked at the fact that if we're going to look at the criteria for moving in to the tent of meeting, which is the place of intimacy, in other words, from moving from the courtyard of the tabernacle into the tent of meeting and communion, then we need to look at in the tabernacle what stands between the courtyard and the tent of meeting, and it is what? The bronze labor. The bronze labor stands between courtyard Christianity and communion Christianity. And courtyard Christianity can look just exactly like, and does look way too much like, the same thing that goes on outside the tent, outside the tabernacle altogether. And we've talked about this at length when we drew a contrast in the Scriptures between Lot, who was a believer, and Abraham, who was a believer. But they had two very different lives and two very different outcomes. And Lot was a believer in the courtyard. It's abundantly clear in the Scripture he was. But Abraham was a believer who was in communion. And it's hard to detect. And I tell you who it's most hardest to detect from, probably. And that is from ourselves. The worst kind of deceit there is is self-deceit. And so we need to go into the Scriptures and let God show us what the truth really is. And we talked about last week that the way we approach that and, and a verse that we use that I think is helpful in that is one that has been important in my life for a long time. There are other, view, other verses like it. But this one, this one, communicates the need for the, for, for the order and the priority of things. And that is this, that when we approach God and we come to the bronze labor and we've got an open Bible with open hearts seeking Him, that we would pray somewhere according to this fashion. Lord, cause me to hear Your loving kindness in the morning, for in You do I trust. And then, cause me to know the way in which I shall walk, for I lift up my soul to You. More often than not, I'm afraid in the Christian life, courtyard believers pray this way. Lord, cause me to know the way in which I should walk. And I might get around to finding out something about your loving kindness. Maybe. But it's an addendum or a postscript to really what I'm going after from you. I want to know your will and your ways, but I have not a priority in knowing you. It taints worship. It mars it. And then God becomes nothing but a spiritual Santa Claus to pander to our needs 
and the world that we are and have become the center of. The flesh is self-serving. The flesh, the philosophy of the flesh. And I heard a guy on the, on the uh, I wrote it down. It was so, because uh, I thought how descriptive this was of the flesh. But I heard a guy say on, on an on a interview I saw on the internet not too long ago, a lost man. This is my world by the way I see it. And you just happen to be living in it. That's the flesh. That is exactly the pathology of the flesh. This is my world and you just have to be living in it. All the rest of you are just a means to my own selfish ends. And I'm going to tell you something right now. You expect lost people to live like that, but courtyard believers live like that. And that's a major problem. That's a major problem. The courtyard and the communion. The courtyard believer, like we talked about last week, lives in confusion. The communion believer lives in clarity. And this is what was said of these men in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, when it said, Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And here's the, here's the part that we want to zone in on. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. It makes a difference to have been with Jesus. And that's the difference that makes the difference. And that's the difference that's very telling. And, and, and we, can, we can hang around with each other long enough to know and pick up on the fact, have you really been with Him? What difference does it make to be with Him? Well, eternal. It's eternal difference in everything. Not only in attitude and action, but in power. In power. It makes a difference to have been with Jesus. And so we've been looking at, what does it mean to be with Jesus? And that's communion. And what is it that stands between the courtyard and the tent of meeting? And it is the bronze laver. And we observed for two weeks in a row now, and I'm I'm encouraging you with it for the third week. The laver is not there to prevent entrance into the tent of meeting. It is there to prepare us for entrance and to permit it. God doesn't stand at the tent and go, Don't you dare come in here. This is reserved for the priest. This is reserved for the big shot. In the old covenant, it was reserved for the priest. But the new covenant, the veil's been torn from top to bottom. And we're a a kingdom of priests, the Scriptures tell us. And so last week, we looked at it and we said, okay, when we looked at Exodus chapter 30, let's go back over to it, if you will, Lord willing. We looked at Exodus chapter 30 and we looked at verse 17 and this is where the bronze labor instruction in part is given. And it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, You shall also make a labor of bronze with its base also of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar and you shall put water in it. For Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet in water from it. And when they go into the tabernacle of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord, they shall wash with the water lest they die. So they shall wash their hands and their feet lest they die. And it shall be a statute forever to them, to him and his descendants throughout their generations. The bronze labor, we know, was made of pure bronze. Nothing mixed in with it. And bronze in the scripture is a type of judgment. Judgment. Not judgment regarding sin only. But the first look at it is the judgment of God regarding His Son. What is the judgment of God regarding His Son? And His redemptive work on the cross. What is the judgment? What is the judgment of God regarding His Son and His redemptive work on the cross? The judgment of God and His Son and His redemptive work on the cross is the resurrection. Because in raising His Son from the dead, here's what He said. My righteous judgment upon sin and sinners has been fully appeased, fully satisfied. It's over. I exercised all of the wrath that repentant, unworthy sinners chosen by me deserve. And there's nothing left for them because I took it out on my son and I communicated that to you by bodily raising him from the dead. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse 24, He was offered up for our sins 
But He was raised for our justification. And so when Christ walked out of the tomb, that was God's judgment regarding His redemptive work. He did it just right. He was the right Lamb. He was the one that was chosen. He's my Son. He did it perfect. His life was perfect. His blood was sinless. It was enough. He atoned for my sins and God called forth His beloved Son. And when He did that, He raised every last one of us from spiritual death and what we deserve apart from Him. Pardon me, but hallelujah! Amen. Thank you, Jesus. And so that's the judgment there. That's why we need to reflect on the order in the psalm that I quoted to you. In the psalm that I quoted to you, is that when we go to the bronze labor, here's, here's the thing. The priority of the bronze labor is that before God looks at look, before God takes a look at me, I need to take a look at him. I don't take a look at me. We as Christians have become a bunch of naval watchers. And we, we get so self-absorbed in analyzing ourselves. You'll find nothing that you need to know about yourself until you first see Him. And when it says, cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning, that's when we go to the bronze labor. And we're washing our hands there. And remember that that labor was made of what? What also was it made of? Mirrors. Man, y'all remember. I'm going to go run around the building and come back in just a minute. And that te- we're told that in Exodus chapter 38, verse 8, it was made of mirrors. And what is that? But to look down with the desert sun shining over my shoulder and in that laver with the mirrors and the clean water and to wash what is on my hands at that time. What's on my blood? Because I've been participating in the sacrifice. The gate, what gave rise to Christ's sacrifice? Was there anything He'd done wrong? No, it was what I'd done wrong. You remember, and some of you are old enough to remember this, how that you used to float it around, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Oh, the far better question is, why would Jesus die? Why would Jesus die? Not for anything He'd done wrong, not to teach us a better way to live, He died as an innocent substitute for unworthy sinners like you and I used to be apart from Him. Hallelujah. And so we go down there and we look at it and we wash the blood off. Why do we wash the blood off? We wash the blood off because of the very reason that we celebrated a few moments ago. God judged His work through His Son to be finished. It's complete. We don't kill anybody else, nor ourselves or anybody around us. We're coming out of the bronze altar. And the bronze altar is the picture of the cross. And that's where we see the work of the cross for us. But as we approach the work, the tent of the meeting, then we come to press in to what God wills and purposes to do of the cross in us. And there's no blood inside that tent. Not anymore. Not because Jesus took it in there and it was His own blood. And there's no need for another sacrifice. As a matter of fact, you don't go in there with another sacrifice. You better get that blood off of your hands. Because if you do, God will strike the priest down. We talked about it last week. You think in priest orientation that they were interested in hearing about what went on with that labor? I'll bet they took good notes. I'll bet they did because Aaron said, let me tell you this, just in case, this we're about to review is very important to you because if you go in there unprepared, you'll die. Now, any questions? But that bronze, see, here's the verse. It's Psalm 143 and it's verse 8. Cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning. Loving kindness sometimes is translated in some of your translations it might be mercy. Cause me, cause me, Lord, to plumb the depths of your mercy. And my understanding of the mercy of God is in direct proportion to how I understand how badly I'm in need of it. Isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't it? When a woman washes the feet of the Savior with her hair and her tears and she doesn't stop kissing and washing His feet and He poses the question. Let me ask you a question. 
And he said, if somebody owed somebody a large sum of money, and somebody owed somebody an insignificant sum of money, who is greater for having been forgiven for the debt? I guess it must be the guy who's been forgiven for the greatest debt. Well, this woman got that. Because since I've been sitting here, she ain't stopped kissing my feet and wiping them with her tears. Oh, dear one, I don't care who you are or how long you've lived on the face of this earth. I don't care if you got saved when you were six years old or when you were 65. You stand in just as much need of the mercy of God as anybody else. And it does seem to be the case, tragically though, that those who get saved in life after trashing their life, sometimes, and it shouldn't be the case, but sometimes appreciate that mercy than maybe somebody who's walked with Christ so many years, they begin to presume on His grace and think that over time, somehow or another, they deserved it. Is that not true? What does a bronze labor do? It gives us a fresh awareness. Don't go look at your navel. Go to the bronze laver and look at the one who made it. And in there, in there, when we wash those hands, it's a reminder. It's not a reminder at that point, really, of our guilt because that's been taken care of. That's how the devil uses the reminder. Remember, to be justified means to be declared innocent, not guilty. Christ was saddled with our sin and the guilt that went along with it. Hallelujah. And we stand there at the bronze labor and we look into that and we see His break. Calls me to hear your loving kindness, Lord. Courtyard believers don't start that way. Courtyard believers start this way. Lord, show me what to do. Give me direction. What tool do I need to use next on the wall? Tell me what I need to do. Give me the nuances of everything I need to do. Give me answers right now. Gotta have them. Gotta have them. Gotta have them. Gotta have it right now, right now. Gotta have it. Come on. Come on, God. Come on, God. Get up to speed. Get up to speed. I gotta have direction. I gotta have it right now. I gotta have it. God's there. He's merciful and He's patient with that. But now, since we're being informed of this is Scripture, couldn't we recalibrate if that's you? If that's you. I doesn't, it doesn't mean that God doesn't want you to, to receive direction from Him. Surely He does. But direction without communion is idolatry. Isn't it? It's idolatry. And the Lord said, Cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning. Start there. Don't start here. Cause me another way in which I shall walk. This is Corey, our believer. I'm going to say it one more time. We'll move on. Courtyard believer, cause me to the way in which I shall walk for this episode to you. Okay, I'm not getting anything. Let me start polling everybody. Let me ask somebody else. Let me find out what their opinions are. And for long, you do that for long, I tell you where you get your opinions from. You get your opinions and your value system from the world around you, from people who are not even in the courtyard. He says, oh, calls me to hear your loving kindness in the morning. Oh, God, show me. Show me the depths of your mercy. Let's go deep there. Let's love on one another. Talk to me. I'll talk to you. Not about anything. Romance. Relationship. Wonder. Love. Those things. Communion with a God who says, get up in my lap and call me daddy. That's the spirit I have as a result of the Holy Spirit living inside me. Daddy, Father, I'm an adopted son. Some of you in here have been adopted. Or maybe you have adopted. you got children that you chose. They're in your home. And they're your family. I've been adopted into the family of God. Hallelujah! With all the rights thereof and the inheritance eternally that goes along with it. The labor is a picture of the Word of God. That water is a picture of the Word of God. And the bronze itself is a picture of the judgment of God first toward His Son. And it is, my boy did it right. You're free. But the water that illuminates the mirror is the Word of God. And you know, we used this at the boys' camp. We had a camp for our fathers and young boys. And we took a prison. 
And we said, what prism are you using to look at God's Word with? Because it's everything about how you view the Scripture. What prism are you using? And a prism, as you know, breaks down light into all of its brilliance, all the colors. As a matter of fact, am I, how, many lights, how many colors are there on there? Is it How many colors? Is it seven? Seven colors. On the, and, and, and seven, to mirror all the I am statements that Jesus made of Himself, seven of them in the book of John. And the prism to which we should look at Scripture is God's Son. And so for the sake, calls me to hear your loving kindness in the morning. See, the water is the Holy Spirit who wrote the Bible. And the Bible is the purpose of the Bible and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said is that He will testify of me. Of me. And so we go there and we get the blood off and we wash the blood off, not because we're guilty, but it just gives rise to praise. And here in combination with, now when you walk in, you can pick something up on your feet too now. And you're going to pick up some dust. Because you remember the tabernacle didn't have some kind of elaborate floor, ornate floor. It was just earth. It was earth. Now there's a tabernacle in heaven that it was fashioned after that doesn't have earth on it. Praise God. Hallelujah. And so when you're walking around, you got the blood, you got to get that off and celebrate at what price God redeemed us. You know what? When you look at salvation in this relationship, between the unworthiness of the recipient and the worthiness of the giver and the gap that gets, that's between those two, that's when we only begin to walk in the joy that God has for His own. The distance between what I deserve from God and what I'm getting from Him. The distance between the fact that I, what I'm not getting from Him that I do deserve. And then we begin to celebrate. But while we're walking around, we pick up some things on our feet. Before we talk about that, now listen, in the next couple of weeks, God willing, we're going to go over, we're on this part, calls me to hear your loving kindness and you, and, you, and you do I trust. Then we're going to look at the blood and the dust in regard to the second part. It calls me another way which is what for lifting my soul to you. But we're not going to do that until we go here first because that's God's order. Because I want me and I want you because God wants it all of us to live no more in the courtyard if we're there. The feet are symbolic of the world, our earthly pilgrimage. First, now wait a minute, how that relates to us and worldliness, we're not going there yet. The first place we got to go is up here, this way. And I want you to look at a piece of Scripture. And I want you to put them together and let's marry these scriptures this morning. Look at Genesis, I mean, uh, Isaiah 66, if you will, verse 1. Isaiah 66, verse 1. We should have went for the feet first and probably went to the blood. And I, and I intended to do that, but I got the order mixed up. The earthly pilgrimage, what we pick up as we move from the bronze altar to the bronze laver. In Isaiah chapter 66, remember, we're looking this way first. Let's don't mess and gone with the other way yet. Right here. Looking this way first. Here it is. Thus says the Lord. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. God must be big. God must be big. If He made all that He made and spoke it into existence, God's big. God's big. Real big. Heaven is His throne and earth is His footstool. Alright? Look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Heaven is my throne 
earth is my footstool. The Lord says. You'll recall in the context of this, this is in the aftermath of the fall of man. And God is speaking to the serpent here. And then He speaks to the woman and then He speaks to the man. And He says, here's basically the fallout of the fall. This is what the consequences I told you about and warned you about. Here they are. But in here, you know that God, in what He says to the serpent, preaches the gospel. Some say it's the first time the gospel appears in the Bible. It's not. The first time the gospel appears in the Bible in the broadest sense is in the making of the woman. And uh, so we, we won't go into that. But that's the gospel starts in Genesis. It doesn't start in Matthew. And so look what he says. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. And on your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. The seed of the woman. The only only way the woman could have seed would be through the virgin birth. I'm going to put my seed in you, in her, and there's going to be an offense between the two. But I'm going to use that seed because you'll notice in your Bible, most of your Bibles, that seed is capitalized, singular for one thing, and it's capitalized because it speaks of Jesus. And it says, and, you shall bru- and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. If heaven is God's throne, and earth is his footstool, where does his heel rest? On earth. And the only thing that the devil could do was bruise the heel of God Almighty. That speaks of the fact that Jesus Christ, who is God, came from heaven and became a man and walked on this earth. And he let his heel be bruised so that you and I could be healed forever. And so when we're washing our feet in that bronze laver, before we ever come into judgment about how, uh, how we're walking and, and the practical need for our need to repent so we can move into the tent of meeting. We need to celebrate the fact that I escaped judgment because God became a man. Let me tell you something. If you're not driven and led by faith, you will be led by fear. They're the opposite of one another. And as Linnell said this morning, the root of anger, she hit it dead on. God showed her that. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to her. The root of anger is fear. The root of anger is fear. And if you are fearful, you are not faithful. You're not walking in faith. And I'll tell you this. We're in the world, but we're not of it. And we have tribulation in it. But believer, you need to be of good cheer because God's overcome it. We kowtow in fear of the world. I don't mean that we become like the world. I don't mean that we get saddled with its values. But I mean before we ever see ourselves, we've got to see God for who He is. And did you know what? That was a successful mission. God did exactly what He purposed and willed to do right there from the beginning. And that wasn't the first time He thought of it. Because our God does not react. Our God acts. He didn't go and say, Adam and Eve made a mess of it. Well, what am I going to do? I'll come up with a great plan. No, no, no. It was before the foundation of the world that that plan was forged. And He knew it all along. It was predetermined that God was going to do that through His Son. And display and show us things about Himself we would know no other way except when mercy and grace came together with the justice of God on the cross of His Son and they kissed right there. That's why you could put on that cross that He's just and at the same time He's a Savior because He's both. And God promised, I am going to leave the throne. My son, I'm going to sin and He's going to leave the throne. And He's going to go down to earth where my foot rests. And His heel will be bruised. But this world will not 
crush his head. We are overcomers because he overcame. It's a finished work. You've got to get the blood off before you can go into the tent. But the work that is finished, we have to press in to the identity of the one who finished it. And that is that Jesus Christ is God who became a man. He's 100% God and He's 100% man. Every heresy floated on this earth has to do with someone's belief in the identity of Jesus Christ and His redemptive work on the cross. If He's not God and somebody doesn't believe He's God, they're not saved. Mark it down. Mark it down. There's no way that you're saved if you don't believe that Christ is God the Son, God the Father, God the Son, and He became a man. And right there. So the dust, when we, walk, when we, when we wash the earth off and we look into the labor, we get to look into some cool things. One of them is John 16. Let's go look at it. Some of you ought to mark this and go back home and read it about 900 times. Look at, look at, look at John 16, verses 31 through 33. Thirty-one through thirty-three. You know, Christians are so whiny, especially in our culture. And and you, the moment that we're denied access to something, or the moment that we, you know, we're spoken ill of, or the moment that we get ill-treated, or the moment that you know we say, "Well, the Christians are up for grabs and they get treated like this," we get all contorted and we get all upset, and we call our lawyers and we do all of these things. And if you got the legal right to exercise your right, that's fine. But my, 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 let's call the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and let's just say every attack only serves to strengthen us and our witness. That's all it ever does. Every time the devil misses with the church, he causes it to grow. That's got to be a source of great irritation to him. Look at it. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Indeed, the hour is coming. Yes, it's now come that you'll be scattered, each into his own, and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. Anytime on this earth that you feel left alone, you could say the same thing. I am not alone, because the Father is with me. I'm not alone, because the Father is with me. Look at it. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. So go out in the woods and hide out until I come and snatch you out. Maybe. No, I response. Be of good cheer. Hallelujah. Why? I've overcome the world. Oh man. Oh man. Christ overcame. He finished the work. When he came out of the tomb, it was complete. We've talked about this before. But when he came out of the tomb, the first words he had to say to the women at the tomb was Rejoice! And it wasn't like, Rejoice, I'm back. I'm back in this body. It wasn't that. The rejoicing was like, rejoice. Do you know what this means for you? Rejoice. Do you understand that this means, Andrew, that you're redeemed forever. I went to heaven, took the blood, spread it all across the mercy seat, and God said to His Son, go back into your body. I'm going to raise you from the dead because the finished work is done and I'm satisfied. Do you know the only thing that will appease the righteous judgment of God against an unrepentant sinner is eternal separation from God in hell. Even though Jesus Christ died on the cross and spent time there to the tune of six hours, in six hours He took an eternity's worth of suffering. That's why, that's why His sweat in the Garden of Gethsemane was as sweat of the drops of blood. That's why 
Every bit of the wrath. What a miracle our work of redemption is. Think about that. Every bit of it was exercised on His Son and He's got nothing left for me. If God punished you for your sin as a believer, He would be unjust to do so. The moment He did it, He'd become an unjust God and worthy of judgment. Hallelujah. This is the bronze laver. These are not things that we need to just recycle and go, whoa, boy, that was nice. These are things that we need to let set down. This is part of causing me to hear your loving kindness in the morning for you who I trust. And I tell you how you can know. I tell you one way you can know. If you're meandering more in the courtyard than you are in the tent of meeting, it's when your gratitude for that begins to diminish. And your wonder. And your childlike all of that begins to diminish. When it, when it gets to the point where it's just routine, and all oh, that was, oh, it's good. Now, what's for dinner? When it becomes a little bit losing its edge, when it becomes routine, and I don't mean that it's supposed to be that we walk around a bunch of, like a bunch of cheerleaders all the time. But on the inside, we're going to walk around like a bunch of cheerleaders all the time. Really? We begin to look. What should be our disposition toward the world? Same as Christ's. <laughs> Don't love the world's system, but love the people who occupy it. But not to be afraid of it. Not to be afraid of it. Because if we fear God, He removes all other fears. Jesus said that, didn't He? He said, you know what? You don't need to fear men. This is, how, this is how much, you know, this, you don't need to fear men because all they can do is kill you. And after that, they're done. That's, all, that's what he said, isn't it? He said, you don't need to fear the one. You don't need to fear men because that's all they can do to you. But here's what you need to do. You need to fear the one who not only can kill you, but can eternally consign you to an eternity in hell. Fear him. Now, who was he talking about? Himself. And then he says the next line, do not fear. Because you fear him and reverence him, he removes all other fears. You don't fear and reverence him, you be riddled with him. Courtyard. Courtyard of communion. It's, it's, it's there. It's there for the believing. It's there for the receiving. So we look in the bronze labor before we ever see anything about ourselves. The bronze labor with the mirrors positioned in it Give us position and give us reason to see something and everything that we stand to see about Him. That's the way the epistles are written. Go look at Ephesians. I'm in my personal Bible time in Ephesians this morning. I had a hallelujah hooting nanny. I didn't get 30 minutes of sleep last night. And I'm telling you right now, I'm about to pass out right now. But I had a hallelujah hooting nanny with the Lord this morning. Because I read Ephesians. And I'm like, man, it just gets better and better. I'm a rich man. The couch that I'm sitting on is torn to pieces and needs duct tape. And I can't find a duct tape to match it. That's the only reason I didn't have any. And I am a rich man. Because the first three chapters of Ephesians are about how rich we are. Isn't that the truth? Then the devil comes along and says, you old pauper. That's why I love that song, Praise the Lord. I'm old enough to remember it. When you're up against a struggle that shatters all your fears and your hopes have been cruelly crushed by Satan's manifested fears, don't get... I mean, let's see, when you hope it... Let's see. Wait a minute. When you're up against a struggle that shatters all your fears and your hopes have been cruelly crushed by Satan's manifested schemes, don't give in, but praise the Lord. Because praise unshackles you from the chains of lies that bind you. Hallelujah to His name. He's overcome. I've got... I went, I'm going to close with this. We got, I know we're about to have communion. 1 John 5, 4. Look at it. 1 John 5, 4. I went into a Christian bookstore years ago. I bet, it was, I bet it was 30 years ago now. And I went into the Christian bookstore and God did this just for me. And, and He probably did, I know He did it for a lot of other people, but He did it just for me. And, and, and that's how God works. He doesn't play favorites, but He did it just for me. And I appreciate it. And there was a beautifully framed, I still got it in our house, um, calligraphed, calligraphed, whatever. Um, this verse. And my last name is Lewis. 
And on top of that, I don't know why they did it. I think it's just God did it for me. On top of the thing, it has a capital letters, Lewis. And I figure, I'm not hard to buy that. That must be mine. I, then I still got it. I cherish it. And it has this verse on it. And you know what? You could put your name in there. Because in the bronze labor, this is what he said. Look at it. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. The bronze labor. The glories of the fact that God became a man. Look at Romans chapter 8. Verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? It's a great question. He who did not spare His own Son, bronze labor, but delivered Him up for us all, bronze labor, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Hope of the tent of meeting. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is He who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. When it says created thing, guess who that includes? Let me tell you who that includes. It includes the person who does more damage to you as far as your prospects of going into the tent of meeting than anybody else will ever do. And that's you. You were a created thing. Last time I looked, that includes you. And to be honest with you, I think more often than not, I know it to be true, that our sojourn in the courtyard is prevented by looking in the mirror at ourselves rather than looking at the scriptures at Him. It is. Because you are not a victim in Christ. You are a victor. And that's why we're whiny about everything that happens to us because we see ourselves victims instead of seeing ourselves as victors. And you know what? It's not humility that gives rise to that. It's pride. It's pride. Because what you're doing is, is you're saying that my judgment regarding God's Son is superior to His. His is, it's holy enough. You're complete. It's done. Everything is, everything is sealed. And my judgment is, it's not. In practice, listen dear one, if we just had a handful of us, I'm not talking about changing the world, I'm talking about being obedient. If that meant we all didn't, whatever obedience means, I get so tired of everybody saying, we're going to change the world. And God said, I'm going to destroy it and start over. <laughs> Don't you get tired of hearing that? That's not biblical. And so, whatever you do, whatever I do, I would like to say that before I go to heaven, I'd like for there to be a lot of it in me before I ever get there. I'd like to be a part of a church that was comprised of so many believers in communion that the ones who are not would view that and have such an appetite for it they would want to know how. 
And that is all based on, not outcomes. It's not based on what happens in that tent. But it's based upon the love and the grace and the mercy and the character and the nature of the God who woos you to it. It's a serenade that God plays. And you're standing on the balcony. And God's standing. He's not a desperate God. I don't mean that where He goes, Oh, I just need Lindsay to worship me. I'm insecure. No. He's a God who has everything, knows everything, possesses everything, and longs to give it to me as His child. And He's saying, Come to me, buddy, because you're wasting time everywhere else. And He's playing that serenade. Let me tell you what the serenade was for me this morning. It's this simple. It wasn't that He rode across the sky and a helicopter flew by and shot out a balloon that says, I love you. It was sitting there on that ragged seat. And opening up the book of Ephesians and reading chapters 1, 2, and 3. And just going, God, how could you bid to me? How could you bid to me? It'd be good to me. He loves us. Everything about it, everything he says is true. Every bit of it. If we ever get into it and just believe it and see Him in all His beauty and His glory, you'd be so connected to Him that whatever's between you and Him, He'll move. He'll move it. Because whatever's between you and Him can't be moved by you. Because you really don't want it moved by you until you get a taste to see that the Lord is good. And then when you see that the Lord is good, He'll make the way. And He'll remove every obstacle. It'll just start moving. I'm not talking about a new car. I'm not talking about a new house. Stupid things like that. I'm talking about walking with God and knowing Him and making Him known. To say that God's good is an understatement. And to say, you know what? Lord, just this morning, let me read Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 calls me to hear your loving kindness in the morning for you do I trust and then he, then he starts out in Ephesians 4 1 and says therefore I the prisoner of the Lord call you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling and you go I'll follow you because wherever you are 